let's now take the normally aspirated cup engine out and actually build a turbo engine, build, get the right turbo, you know, on just everything, every single thing you can make better. And it was a badass cup, I and mean, it was twice the car that the first year's car was. In this episode of the HPA Tuned In podcast, we've got Shane T joining us from the US, and uh, Shane is definitely no stranger to uh, in-person interviews at least with us. This is the first time uh, we've been forced to do it via the wonders of the internet and unless you've been hiding under a rock, Shane's probably not a new name. He's probably one of the uh, most prominent tuners out there. Gets his uh, hands involved in a, a really wide and diverse range of projects which is why we always love talking to him. Uh, also uh, set a fair few records in all forms of motorsport. So a uh, great conversation with Shane today and particularly we're focusing on his exploits at Pikes Peak with a modified LMP3 prototype car. Uh, one of the questions that over the years we've consistently got from our customers as well as uh, just generally on the internet is how do we deal with tuning changes for uh, big changes in altitude, uh, particularly barometric pressure affects our fueling. Uh, to a lesser effect, uh, lesser aspect, also our boost pressure uh, targets as well as our ignition timing. So dive right into that with Shane at Pikes Peak and how he dealt with that. And uh, I mean, Tim, from from your perspective, what what was your sort of takeaway from Shane's interview? Anything specific you sort of uh, focused on there or learned? Yeah, I think it was probably the thing that really stuck with me was much more about his approach to the sort of work he decides to take on. It was. Uh, well, there was a whole lot of really good technical stuff in there, but in particular what stuck with me when he was saying he was really picky about what he takes on, you know, obviously that is uh, that feeds into how much you learn, but also your reputation as well, not getting stuck in the wrong the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong project. It's very easy to say yes to things, Definitely. you know, and it's, I think it must take a lot of discipline to say no sometimes. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that not all projects and unfortunately not all customers are created equal. So uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll hear more about that from Shane as we get into the interview. Uh, now before we do jump into the interview with Shane as well, just wanted to uh, focus on an Instagram post that uh, got quite a lot of hot debate, which is on drive-by-wire throttle conversions. And these days we see a lot of cars being converted from cable throttle to drive-by-wire. I don't think we'd see a production car out there these days without drive-by-wire. And it is something that gives us as tuners a lot more control over the power delivery and uh, the torque modulation. And the age-old debate here or the argument that we constantly see is twofold. Uh, One is around the safety aspects of drive-by-wire compared to cable throttle. And the other aspect there that goes hand-in-hand is this uh, perceived lag or latency with drive-by-wire. So our argument with that is, again, twofold. First of all, in the safety aspect, Uh, Most people don't understand that there are some really good built-in safety strategies with the ECU uh, in case something does go wrong. So really, in terms of safety, uh, it's probably safer than a cable throttle, and I've personally seen more cable throttles stick than I've seen problems with drive-by-wire. But also that latency or lag, the delay that people perceive, 
I think a lot of that actually comes back from uh, the earlier days of drive-by-wire. The technology wasn't quite as advanced and actually a lot of that lag was purposely brought in by uh, the manufacturer to to control the way the throttle opened and yeah, I, I agree, they felt horrible but uh, these days it's not an issue. Uh, Tim, you're involved in uh, GT3 race cars, how many cable throttles are we seeing these days? Uh, yeah, I don't remember the last time I saw a cable throttle on a proper race car. Oh, a V8 supercar's got a cable throttle still. Okay. But there maybe there's an argument for them being a bit of a taxi sometimes as well, so maybe that holds true. Maybe. They're just pulling that technology yeah. down a little bit. Uh, also on that note, if you are interested in learning a little bit more about tuning, we touch on drive-by-wire throttle in our courses. Uh, we do have a special podcast uh, coupon code. You can use podcast75 to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. And you can find our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. All right, without any more delay, let's get into our interview with Shane T. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Shane. How are you doing? Um, great, man. How are, how are you guys doing? Ah, we yep. can't complain. Both doing pretty good, man. So, right, you can't complain and no one cares. <laughs> On top of that, we're dealing with this ridiculous virus, so Absolutely. what can we do, right? Yeah, no, it's been a while since we've been a get, been able to get out of the country. So, a, again, uh, podcast, that's our, that's our new normal, so we'll, we'll do what we can. Uh, again, for those who have been maybe living under a rock, can you maybe give us the, the sort of two-minute recap on uh, Shane T's background? Where have you come from and how did you get into tuning? Two minutes. That'll be tough. So, so well, to, to start it off, my dad was an auto shop teacher and he was building hot rods and stuff in the shop uh, in the garage when I was a little kid. So, you know, I was, I guess, predestined to want to have something to do with cars. So, uh, after I finished high school, I went and worked at a regular car repair shop for a couple of years. My dad's company um, did diagnostic support. It would have been a call center um, manned by people that speak English, which is different compared to now. But anyway, um, that was for automotive mechanics all across the U.S. to repair regular street-driven cars because when the computers showed up in cars here in the U.S. in the in 1980s, early 80s, there was no information available to mechanics that were not working for dealerships, and it was really difficult for them to uh, work on those cars. So, you know, he started a company that had a call center that helped guys do that. And when I had enough experience, I basically went to work for him doing that. So I got several years worth of um, drivability, uh, no start. I mean, any kind of failure you can imagine on a computer-controlled car whether it was domestic or imported here in the U.S., and you'd pick up probably 30 of those calls a day. Uh, so I did that for about five or six years. Um, ultimately left there, didn't really know what I was going to do, had an introduction to Motec earlier in my life, and decided to take a shot at it, and I went over and begged and pleaded for a job for like, I don't know, two months, and I think they got tired of me begging, so they just gave me a job. Um, so at the time you so, go into to working for Motec, you've you've got no existing experience in EFI tuning. Is is that that right? I want to say I had no experience. So when I was one of the guys that worked for my dad was an electronics engineer uh, before he became an auto auto mechanic, and I was fourteen years old and was more interested in cars and engines than I was in my friends and bicycles. So I. I went with my dad to work every day that summer and I built a go-kart and then I pretty quickly got bored with the go-kart and decided to 
put a supercharger on my Briggs & Stratton engine, which I used a smog pump. I don't even know if you know what that is, but it's a little air pump, basically a vein air pump that pumps air in the exhaust on a, on a street-driven vehicle to control emissions. But it looked like a perfect supercharger for my go-kart, so I bolted it on there. Couldn't get it to work right with the carburetor. Um, struggled with that a little bit, and then one of the guys that worked with my dad came over and said, look, why don't you put EFI on it? And I'm like, okay, what's sure, what's EFI? So he kind of showed me how to do it, and we spent a couple of years building our own little electric, I would say, fuel injection system. Motec happened to be in the same business park that my dad's shop was in, so eventually we went looking for injectors, and I went over to Motec, and that's how I got an in with them when I was pretty young. Right. Um, so, no, did I go tune EFI-equipped race cars? And No, I didn't do that, but I, I had my finger in EFI from a pretty early age. Um, and a reasonably good understanding because of my background of my dad being an auto shop teacher and stuff. So I, I had done tuning on, on carbureted engines, um, not professionally, but I, I knew enough about what I was doing that I could at least fake it till I made it when I went to work at Motec. I mean, I told him, of course, that I had knew all this stuff and I'd done it a lot. I think I tuned one Haltech one time for a friend of mine who had a sand rail and his brother or his brother had a sand rail, it had a Haltech, and no one else knew what to do with it. So I went out and went like this, and that was about the extent of it. Basically, but a pro. I, yeah, exactly, pro. Just at that point, what what sort of products and uh, were Motec doing at this point when you joined them? Like, give us a bit of a like, look at what the, what it, what their product line looked like at that point. So I started in November of two thousand one. They had just come out with the M eight hundred. It was still DOS based software. They had the M48, the M4, the M8 was being phased out. They had a Motec Dash. That was, and that was about it. I mean, they had a few expansion modules, but that was about the extent of it. So I started off on the DOS M4, M48. There's maybe now there's some more trade, but there was space. I mean, at that time, you it, there was not a whole lot of thought towards education on how to tune or how to use or how to do tuning, it was really more experience-based. Like, in other words, the guys that had already done it said, well, this is how I do it. And, and if you asked them why, you kind of got, because that's the only way to do it, not, like, actually why. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that I started out on the smallest DCU, the M4, which smallest, it's the least amount of controls in the small smaller engines. Um, and... You know, start. I built an engine to learn how to tune. By the time I, by the time I put that engine on the dyno, I'd already been tuning for a year and a half. So I, I realized that there might be quite a learning curve. I had a small block Chevy that I built that I was intended to go run on the engine dyno, so I could learn how to tune. And like, like I said, by the time I went to go do that, I'd actually already been tuning stuff for like like a year and a half. So um, it, it was kind of trial by fire. There, I was hired as a backup to George Clark. George Clark. Started with Motec in the U.S. and maybe probably the early to mid '90s, um, but had he had the hard hard job of now at least it's acceptable when you tell someone to run EFI. I mean it's pretty common in almost every form of motorsport. At that time, everything was carburetors or mechanical injection, and when you told him EFI, there was a lot of uh, yeah bullshit <laughs> or you know the the big thing then was you know when you put put an engine on the dyno to run it. The idea of spending all day to map it was, you know, everyone wants to shoot themselves because they're like, oh, we would have already made, we would have been done tuning by now with the carburetor or with the mechanical injector or whatever. 
because you were you were creating the map from absolute nothing yeah i think it's probably a fair, fair fairly safe to say it's a lot easier to uh convert people from carb to efi these days than it would have been back in the 90s he had the massive struggle so the, why i was going down that path was that you clearly he had an attitude that i didn't have to have because i didn't deal with that struggle uh and so i came in in his backup as his backup uh, but because i didn't kind of have that attitude i pretty quickly went to number one everybody wanted to deal with me because i was easier to deal with yeah and i was you know i was younger so and and he needed a break anyways because he literally had almost killed himself trying to keep up with the demand of everything so so yeah i mean for the better part of a few years i was if you want the number one tuner for motec in the u.s as far as anybody that called motec and wanted something tuned i was the guy that went and did it so that gave me lots of experience on all different kinds of engine types of uh, power adders types of racing you know venues or you know genres if you want so I, I didn't have the opportunity to say no sorry i only want to work on drag race motorcycles or i only want to work on big block chevys i had to work on whatever somebody paid for yeah whether it was a helicopter a plane motorcycle bike drag whatever it was so that was in that that i've kept that you know since i've Honestly, I don't know any other way. I don't think it would be that much fun to work on any one thing. I think it, it sounds to me like uh, you sort of stumbled into or f- were forced into that path of uh, the you know, to become an expert in any any trade. They say you need 10,000 hours of experience, and it sounds like Motec really fast-tracked that for you, which is great. Uh, certainly trial by fire and that experience, as you say, getting exposed to so many different options is going to obviously give you more experience and extend your skills. So just sort of fast-tracking this to get onto the main topics uh post motec uh, i mean why you've sort of come to the fore I, I see a lot of tuners all around the world who who do have good experience but sort of kind of end up uh, maybe pigeonholed into one type of motorsport and as is sort of we know with you you kind of do anything that comes across your plate and you also end up doing a lot of uh high-end stuff that uh helps improve your visibility as well so how, how have you sort of stumbled into that how, how did you get to to that post leaving motec no uh, i mean some of it is okay so well first of all when you you know i was doing race support in all every form of racing that motec had something in uh, so I was exposed to a lot of different race teams, race team owners. It doesn't take very long if you know what you're doing for someone to recognize that you do and say, hmm, why don't I just have you work for me instead of, you know, I pay Motec. So that offer gets extended, you know, from time to time. And usually it's bullshit and they go away. But in 2000, actually end of 2005, Christian Rado basically said, you know, I want to hire you as my crew chief. And he put his money where his mouth was and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So... I knew that I didn't want to cut myself off and be stuck in sport compact drag racing. And I told him, like, I'll only do it if I can, you know, I'll take care of your needs. But outside of that, I want to be able to work on anything anybody calls. I want to be basically a private contractor. He says, no problem. So, you know, I couldn't. I basically had a golden parachute, if you want. Someone's going to pay me to go into business for myself and, you know, work on his race team. So. You know, that started, I still worked with all the clients that I had in Motec that needed help. Uh, I left Motec on the best possible terms. They would recommend people to hire me if I, they needed somebody. Um, and I, because of that, I didn't have to take every job that came in, and I started cherry-picking right away. This is a pain in the ass. 
I'm not doing that one or, you know, sorry, I'm not available. But this one I think I can be successful at. And I've, I've really tried really hard over all these years to stay with that same motto. And it's not always easy, but you, you eventually develop a little bit of a knack for telling when you're getting involved with a project that's probably not going to end up going the way you want. I 100% agree. The best case scenario is you don't get involved with it to begin with. And then, you know, you just say, look, I'm too busy. And then you're not a dick. Yeah. Option two is you're, you're already involved with it and you realize it's not, it's going to go sideways, cut your losses, tell them, sorry, it's not going to work. Let me just give you your money back and you go your way and I'll go my way and everything will be cool. And that's actually honestly worked in a couple different, in my favor, a few different times, believe it or not. But, um, but if you get good enough projects where people will let you do what you want and, 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 and I always say this to everybody, whether it's true, it's my philosophy could be right, could be wrong, but. I, I think that Motec, because it's not the cheapest brand, uh, almost pre-qualifies the clientele. So when a guy buys a Motec, whether he is right about it or wrong, he thinks that's he's buying what he perceives is the best thing he can buy for the money. Uh, and those kinds of guys typically have that same attitude from the front end of the car to the back. Yeah. They find the best engine builder, the best parts. And so you can really be successful because you've used all of the correct components to do the job. Versus the other guys who buy the cheap ECU and then buy the cheapest parts and then find the cheapest guy there is to bolt the engine together. And they just, no matter what engine management system you put on or whatever, you know, wand waving magician uh, tuner you hire, they can't fix, they can't, you know, you've got, you're making chicken, what is it, chicken soup out of chicken shit or something. Uh, you, you can be doing the best job you can be doing, but it's not really going to reflect very well on you in the end. Well, I think I think the other thing is that um, I, I saw this all the time when I ran my commercial tuning business and you, you'd get someone bring a car to you and they'd spent good money on the engine or good money on the ECU and then they'd scrimped and saved on a bunch of other parts and then first of all they were pissed off that they had to spend good money on the tune and and that's the part in my opinion that does bring all of these other bits together so that's where you want to be spending money and dealing with the right person the flip side of that was the customers who had as you've said basically bolted together a pile of shit and then they bring it to to you as a tuner you can't do a good job because it doesn't have the sum of parts it needs but of course the tuner's the last person who touches it so when it doesn't drive nice or something goes wrong of course then the tuner becomes the arsehole so I think really smart move getting yourself away from some of those projects that are just destined to fail from the get-go. That's, that's exactly the key I mean you know it's just a really simple example if someone doesn't have a fuel pump to support a thousand horsepower even if they have the injectors that can support a thousand horsepower and the ECU and all this other shit, you simply the one key you need, you don't have. So no matter how much you want to make a thousand horsepower, yeah, look, we might be able to get the dyno to read that one time, yeah. but then you're going to have a pile of parts to clean up. Right. So it, it, having the ability and the, and the intestinal fortitude to be able to tell your customer, I am not doing this because you don't have the right parts. And if you won't, allow me to do it with the right parts, I'm not the guy for the job. If you could do that, you save yourself a lot of headaches. Yeah, I think that's very difficult for a lot of tuners who are just getting started with commercial tuning to actually see see the bigger picture with that, where they've got rent to pay, they've got staff to pay, and there's a guy standing there, or a girl, who wants the job done, 
and it's very easy to sort of go oh look i'll take your money but yeah the headache at the end of the day and how that affects your reputation it, it's the juice isn't worth the squeeze all right let, let's move on and and one of the the reasons we wanted to have a chat Shane is I know you've just been involved with running uh, an LMP3 car at Pikes Peak in the unlimited class and uh, that that's a, a pretty grueling event uh, I had a couple of cracks at it myself with one of our local competitors so I, I've seen what's involved I've, I've done the early mornings and uh, it's it's a hell of a time to be over there um, can you, can you start by just giving us a little bit of a, a rundown on, on what the LMP3 car what is or was? Okay, so the, so the team, so the, the backstory to this project is that, so three years ago in January, uh, one of my customers who I worked with other projects on calls and says, uh, we've got this guy who wants to run Pikes Peak. I'm like, it's January. I'm getting ready to say no because it's January. I know Pikes Peak is June. Six months is not enough time, depending on what they want to do, right? So, okay, well, all right, what is it? Well, we're going to do a Porsche, you know, GT3 Cup car. We're going to hang a turbo on it. It's, you know, we're going to go try to run Pikes Peak. I said, man, you're behind schedule. This is not a good, we should not. I try to talk them out of it. They go, look, the guy that owns it has terminal cancer. He doesn't have the option to go next year. This is his lifelong dream to run Pikes Peak. And we have until June to make it happen. Are you in or not? And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm in. Okay, so let's let's normalize the, really normalize it. Like, look, literally, let's hang turbos on an NA 10.5 to 1 whatever engine, make the least amount of possible boost we can make at sea level, and just try to keep the thing making this 600 or whatever those things make at the wheels all the way to the top. That's the best we can do. So that's basically what we did. Um, and unfortunately, he crashed it in like a dead, the last practice before qualifying. Ah. So, so we were dead in the water and dude, it was like the positive though, is that his cancer went into remission. Wow. That allowed him to try again last year. So last year, what we did, we, instead of saying we have six months to figure the car out, we had a year and some change. So last year it was, let's take everything we learned and let's go. Now that we have some data from doing it one time, Let's let's fix everything we know how to fix. And we had an awesome car last year and it ended up like it made probably 950 and it was doing that at 14,000 feet. So we're still talking the same Porsche chassis there or did... it's the same. Cha- I think they actually had to fix the tub from when it got crashed. But basically it's the same car, but upgraded everything and like, look, let's get rid of this heavy shit and put good stuff in and lightweight parts and better suspension and better, obviously, engine. And let's now take the normally aspirated cup engine out and actually build a turbo engine built get the right turbo you know on just everything every single thing you can make better and it was a badass car. I mean, it was twice the car that the first year's car was but unfortunately in qualifying last year he crashed that one and even worse i mean went off in sump end over end and it just completely everything's jumped so then it's like okay but you gotta love this guy i don't know i mean kids you're just behind him anyway like it's so he says, you know, I, I, I hate to even ask you guys if you want to do it again, but do you want to do it again? Like, yeah, of course, we're in. What do you want to do? So they say, well, let, we can get our hands on. It's it's less expensive to get it, to get an LMP3 from somebody than it is to go try to do another one of those Porsches again. So so that's what they did. They found a, a um, it's a Riley chassis LMP3, which normally would run in ALMS series and has a V8 
ZK50 Nissan, um, normally aspirated. In fact, I think with uh, air inlet restrictors in it as well. Right. Um, to run that series, and it makes like whatever 350, 400 horsepower, something of the wheels. It has its own design, the X-Track gearbox, and all the stuff that it needs to be an LMP car. Mm. So they got this thing, and the first thing we did was put him in it for six months and let him take it every weekend. We could possibly get him out to a racetrack and let him drive it around the racetrack to get some experience in it. Meanwhile, um, they took a second engine, sent it to the engine shop, had it done in order to put turbos on it. You know, we obviously we're going to put turbos, but what we tried to do is keep him driving it as long as possible, and then just make the change to the turbo setup. And you know, the car comes with not with Motec electronics and stuff on it, so. That all got gutted and turned into the Motec way, if you want, um, and then ran the car on the chassis dyno quick, went to a test track quick, and then by then we're June of this year. It's time to go to Pikes Peak, you know, so uh, I'm not sure what your original question was, no, but I, I had think a great I th- time telling the story. It's a great one. Was the, the car itself, what other sort of changes are we talking apart from powertrain stuff? Like, was it essentially an LMP3 car with some maybe some different tires and that's about it? Yeah, well, they raised the ride height to get it up off the cruise, and we had to cut, like, add, change the steering axle, uh, steering amount, if you want, mm. because it couldn't turn the wheels. We had to cut the fenders out. I mean, it's, a lot of last-minute stuff had to happen because of the way it all worked, and, and in order to make those tight turns at Pikes Peak, ended up working out. But, um, yeah, it was a, essentially, a, we could go back and run LMP3 with it. Obviously, it wouldn't be legal, but, I mean... That there was a little bit of spring and suspension work done, raised the ride height a whole bunch to clear the ground, mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had to add some extra coolers because we created a whole bunch more heat than they have on a normally aspirated engine. But other than that, it was pretty much an LMP3. Cool. Okay. So, again, for those who maybe have been hiding under a rock and haven't heard of Pikes Peak, could, could you just give us the the rundown on like what the challenges are, first of all, from an engine perspective and then from a tuning perspective on actually getting a car to the top of Pikes Peak and then hopefully getting it to the top, near the top of the timesheets as well. Yeah, so so it's much more complicated uh, than just the tuning side of it, uh, it is, but the tuning aspect is this. Um, Pikes Peak, when you, when you take the freeway to the exit for Pikes Peak, you're at 6,000 feet of altitude which is higher than most people are ever on in anything they ever work on. Um, you, tu- of course, tune the car at sea level. You go to 6,000 feet. Uh, you start your way up the mountain. The, the base of the, of the drive up to the top of the mountain is at 7,500 feet. That's the gate, the entry gate. You then drive four or five miles towards the summit to the starting line, which is at 9,300, I believe. Uh, and from 9,300, you drive 12 and a half miles through 156 turns on a public two-lane road um, to to 14,110 feet at the summit. Uh, this road has been paved uh, now for the last six or eight or ten years, all the way up, which is which seems like it should be good. But one of the problems that the pavement has created near this top of the mountain, uh, the last few thousand feet, the ground is high enough in elevation and the temperatures are low enough year round that it becomes like permafrost, like it would be in the uh, above, like the Arctic Circle. 
uh, it's not quite cold enough to stay frozen all year round. And because of that, uh, as the frost in the ground melts underneath, the weight of the asphalt now causes changes in heave. In other words, the road goes up and down like waves. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and or pitch. I mean, it can the, the road the road effectively moves on a daily basis near this near the top. Of course, because it's an active road that people drive up and down every day, there's gravel, there's rocks, there's dirt. Uh, you know, you're up in the mountains. There can be weather changes, rain, sleet, snow. In fact, we had snow this year uh, and ice near the top, so they didn't run the race all the way up. So your, your challenge for tuning is the simplest part of that. It's just the altitude change, right? And then the fact that you need to understand the operating range that the engine's going to run in so you can understand the operating range that the turbo is going to run in. Um, but interestingly enough, you never really get a chance to run the car all the way up the course until it's race day in all of your practice and all of your qualifying, you split up into three groups and you run one third of the course per day. Yeah. Um, so there's the part that Andrew uh, or Andre, sorry, uh, alluded to earlier uh, about getting up at early in the morning. And it just starts at 5 a.m. because this, is, again, is a public road and they have to pay for the privilege of running on it. And it's expensive per hour. So they start at 5 a.m. and you have to be off the mountain by 9 a.m. So that means you have to get up at 2 a.m. Right. To go get in line. And then it's so, OK. So as soon as it's light, you start your run for one third of the course. You either run from the bottom to the middle middle towards the top section or top up to the summit and everybody rotates on every day, different day. So you get a chance to run each section, but you never run it all together. Uh, so, which means you never get the data all together. Yep. Like, you know, you might start on the lower section or the middle or the upper, and then the next day you're in a different spot. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all of that altitude change and stuff. And then the fact that you don't get to actually run, run what you're going to race ever until race day. And even then, if you're, you know, I mean, you can't do anything, whatever happens on the race happens. Cause it's not like you can go get the laptop and fix it. Right. It's just, Oh, I guess we come back next year. Yeah. I, I kind of remember watching our car leave the start line on race day and sort of thinking to myself, well, might as well go jump on a plane. Now that's done. Can't, can't really have much effect on it once it's left. And then of course you don't get to see it for about another five hours. Uh, just coming back to one of the questions at HPA, we're constantly bombarded with is around tuning for large changes in altitude and I mean nowhere is it more dramatic realistically than Pike's Peak and just to put some some broad sort of numbers around it uh, our pressure air pressure at uh, sea level approximately 100 kPa uh, rounding it then if I remember correctly at the start line as you said about 9,000 feet I seem to recall we're around 80-85 kPa obviously depending on the atmospheric conditions and then at the summit I think I was seeing maybe 65-60 kPa does that sound about right Shane? It's close it's a little lower it's like 70-78 or something like that at 9,300 and it's 61 to 60 at, at the summit okay but I mean these these are numbers that people normally wouldn't see unless the engine was running with the throttle closed. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right, so in terms of the engine, what is the impact on it from that lower barometric air pressure? What's the impact on the engine? Yeah, Yeah, of course. I mean, look, if you were going to run the engine wide open throttle at sea level where your local barometric pressure, like you said, is 101.325 kPa and standard day is 15 degrees, whatever, uh, C 
air temperature. If you keep the air temperature the same at the top of Pikes Peak and you have 61 kPa to work with instead of 101.325, you're roughly going to make 61% of the horsepower that you make uh, at sea level. So, you know, if you have a thousand horsepower engine at sea level, you take it to Pikes Peak and run it under the same conditions, and it's going to make 610. Yep. Okay. So, and really, from a fundamental perspective, this is just about the ability for the engine to fill itself with a, with air. Yeah, no, so actually, you haven't changed the engine's ability to fill itself with air, but what you have changed is the density of the air that the engine is consuming. So I think that's actually one of the key points that so many people overlook. It's not the volume of air that we're getting into the cylinder that matters. It's the density of that. Yeah, that, that's just a fundamental aspect that's so easy to ignore. It is, and it's 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 more complex than even those two uh, parts of the equation make it seem like. And, and I've thought of a thousand ways to try to describe it easily. And, and I always come back to the same thing. The easiest way to describe it is the way everyone describes it, which is you have volumetric efficiency and then you have a density uh, of the air that the engine's operating in. It's hard to get your head around because in reality, the volumetric efficiency, the swept volume of the cylinder is not actually changing. Yeah but the amount of combustible air inside of it is. And so the easiest way to think about that is that there's a volumetric efficiency change. So what what we really want to be able to do is have a, a way of, as accurately as possible, calculating the, the mass of air that is making its way into the cylinder as our barometric pressure, atmospheric pressure changes. Now, Typically in the aftermarket, we run the speed density operating system, which is a nice simple system where we've got a three-dimensional table with RPM versus manifold absolute pressure on the vertical axis, and, and that's that. And that's how just about every aftermarket ECU operates. How, where does that fall over when we take an engine that we've perhaps tuned on the speed density operating system at sea level or thereabouts, and we take it to Pikes Peak? Because I know a lot of people think that if we're operating speed density, because the manifold pressure ultimately is going to be affected by our barometric air pressure, it kind of just compensates for barrow. We don't need to worry about it. Give us your take on that. First of all, there's a number of ways to attack this problem. Uh, and this is the way I do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the only way or it's the only right way. Um, but, but the problem is when you are using manifold pressure as the as the load or the efficiency axis, um, what you're, you're, you're really trying to indicate is the demand uh, on the engine or the efficiency of the engine compared to what the local pressure is, okay, local barometric pressure. Now, th throttle position actually does this reasonably well because no matter what altitude I go to, 50, 60, 80, 70, 100, percent throttle is always a hundred percent throttle um, and, and and effectively that's what we're trying to indicate by using manifold pressure as the axis um, on the volumetric efficiency table manifold speed density works okay as long as you always run the same altitude or you run the same altitude that you tune the engine under yeah. um, where it has a problem is if you change altitudes and here's the reason why um, if, if the local pressure, when I tune the engine at sea level is 101.325, when I go full throttle, 
at any given RPM, assuming I don't have a restriction upstream of the throttle plate, the intake manifold pressure will be 101.325, indicating that I'm at 100% efficiency, if you want, right? Because I'm at 100% demand, I have equivalent pressure in the intake manifold that I have barometric pressure. Uh, and the engine is also exhausting itself into the local barometric pressure of 101.325. So therefore, the efficiency across this cylinder, or the pressure ratio across the cylinder, which affects the volumetric flow rate of the cylinder, right? Just like an orifice. The more pressure you put across an orifice, the more air goes through it. Um, so if the pressure ratio across the cylinder is equal, uh, then whatever the engine can deliver is based on the physics of the engine, the intake manifold, exhaust manifold, camshaft, port, whatever. Uh, as I start to increase the pressure on the intake side, decrease the pressure on the exhaust side, I gain flow. And if I do it the other way around, where I decrease the pressure on the intake side and increase the pressure on the exhaust side, I lose volumetric flow. Now, I'll just stop you there because I think a, a really nice analogy here uh, that's maybe a little bit easier for some of our listeners to follow is that's really no different than if we consider a fuel injector. And on one side of the fuel injector, we've got fuel pressure. And on the other side of the injector, we've got, well, normally it's fitted to the manifold, so we've got manifold pressure. And most people would probably understand that if we raise fuel pressure relative to manifold pressure for a given pulse width, the injector can flow more fuel. So this is really no different to our engine. That is precisely what we're talking about. The differential pressure across the cylinder from the intake to the exhaust. But Just most, like the injector. But most people, when they, they make that statement that uh, speed density automatically compensates for barometric pressure what they're missing out of that equation is, yeah, but the barometric pressure also affects the pressure at the exhaust side of the engine, so so it's not. Right. So there's two things happening. This is, And this, again, drops us back into the problem with using map only as your volumetric reference. If you at least reference map to barometric pressure by doing, uh, some systems call it map divided by barrow, so you have the pressure upstream of the throttle or atmospheric pressure uh, and the inlet manifold pressure and you divide manifold pressure by barrow, that at least takes into account the fact that if, if I'm at a place where the local barometric pressure is 80, when I get 80 kPa in the intake manifold, I'm at 100% of demand yep. or 100% of its efficiency. Um, but because we're only measuring one side of the pressure across the cylinder, we can go a step further if we actually measure the pressure in the exhaust side of the engine. This would be kind of unimportant on a normally aspirated engine because there's not too much of a restriction uh, on the exhaust side. So you could pretty pretty much be sure that if you have 100 kPa worth of barrow on the intake side, you're also exhausting into 100 kPa. Yeah. Where, where we run into trouble, though, is with a turbo. When we back the exhaust up to drive a turbine or, um, you know, what it whatever you plug the exhaust up with, it could be a muffler if you want on a normally aspirated engine. Uh, but on a turbo, because we not only back the exhaust up, but then we use a wastegate to throttle the amount of backup we have in the exhaust, we subject the cylinder to varying uh, ratios of intake pressure to exhaust. In other words, we vary the differential pressure depending on how much boost and how much back pressure we have. Uh, and, and therefore, by measuring across the cylinder itself, intake versus exhaust, 
that's that's a more exacting way, particularly on a turbo engine, to describe what the volumetric flow rate of the engine will be. So that gives you a, a way to locate that point on a on a lookup table and and be able to program accordingly. So uh, depending on the ECU you're tuning, it's still not very common and there's some complexities in getting that information, which I want to touch on, but uh, that's often referred to as IMAP uh, divided by EMAP, so inlet manifold pressure divided by exhaust manifold pressure or uh, simply pressure ratio. But again, it's not that common. Uh, We've gone down that path actually with one of our development cars that did some custom firmware just to to get a feel for it. But unfortunately, here I don't get to experience the barometric pressure changes to really to see it, how well it works. But essentially, you tune that system on a pressure ratio at sea level. And as long as it's entirely mapped properly, you can take that to 9,000 feet, 14,000 feet, and you're just referencing different parts of that volumetric efficiency table. Yeah, so what, what, we're, what we're saying is that an engine for any given pressure ratio between the intake and the exhaust uh, will have a particular volumetric curve based on engine speed only, assuming we don't close the throttle, Yep. and that that volumetric shape will be the same whether we're at sea level or at 20,000 feet of altitude. That shape never changes. Um, what will affect that shape is if we vary the pressure on the intake compared to the exhaust, either make one or the other higher or lower. Uh, and, and then the physical parts of the engine itself, different intake manifold, camshaft, header, whatever. But if we keep the same engine, as long as we keep the pressure ratio constant intake to exhaust, no matter where we go in altitude, the only variance, there will be no variance in volumetric flow. The only variance will be the density change between the altitude that we start at and the altitude that we finish at. And that is a linear equation. Yep. Uh, and can easily be compensated for either with, a, with the correct uh, compensation table or in many cases it's now just done in the background where the ECU references the absolute intake manifold pressure and says this is what the air density is inside the plenum uh, between that and the air temperature and therefore we have our volumetric flow rate and we can add the density into the equation to come up with our mass flow rate and now provide an equivalent uh, amount of fuel to match that mass flow. That, that's just, as you've said there, like a, a linear equation. So essentially if we're operating at 100 kPa absolute pressure and we've tuned for say 0.90 lambda, if we double that that uh, manifold pressure up to 200 kPa, the ECU to maintain that same lambda target is just simply going to double the pulse width uh, provided to the injectors or double the, the mass of fuel su- supplied. So that's just background. We yeah. don't really need to worry about it too much. I mean, it's, yes. I mean, it doesn't exactly work that way because the, the offset in the injector and all that stuff. But assuming you have all of that bullshit right. Yeah. You know, and for the sake of the argument, assuming that, hey, uh, you know, at 100 kPa, we need four milliseconds to appropriately fuel the engine under this operating condition. As long as the intake manifold and the exhaust manifold pressure compared to each other do not change, if we go to 200 kPa from 100 kPa, we need double the fuel vo- uh, fuel volume, so we need eight milliseconds instead of four. Yeah, cool. Uh, all right, so I, I touched on this, and I just want to come back to it uh, again. The the pressure ratio axis is not a very commonly used way uh, used load axis, and I think part of that uh, complexity comes around from actually getting. Uh, a stable and viable exhaust manifold pressure source 
and particularly from my own experience I've done this on drag cars I've done this on a few of our development cars if you actually just purely hook up a exhaust manifold pressure sensor to the exhaust manifold pre-turbocharger and you look at that signal in its raw form it's it's incredibly noisy and then you've got options to either filter that in software or you've got options to mechanically damp that or use the raw data so uh, can you give us your take like I've, I've had people argue that mechanically damping the signal uh, is is going to ruin the signal because you're not really seeing what's happening but at the uh, flip side of that is if you look at that raw data it's literally just all over the place uh what's your take what can we use what do we need to do there yeah well i always mechanically damp uh, i mean if 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 i'm not if i'm using it as a efficiency calculation in other words if i'm measuring exhaust manifold pressure like we've been talking about and dividing manifold pressure by exhaust manifold pressure i mechanically damp um because what i'm looking for is average I'm not looking for instantaneous pressure. And even if I was, the sensors I'm trying to use and the data logging system I'm trying to use is so slow and out of sync with what the engine's doing that it's irrelevant anyway. So I, if I'm simply logging exhaust manifold pressure, I might choose to just filter it in software so it looks smooth. Usually because of the system I'm using, I can filter it either in the hardware or I can filter it in the software analysis after or the data analysis software after. I'll do it in the data analysis side. So if I want to look at that spiky bullshit, I can. And and if I want to do calculations or something from intake to exhaust manifold pressure, I can filter it afterwards in the data. But if I'm actually running the engine, I will do a mechanical filtering uh, so, so that I don't, A, blow up the sensor that I'm relying on to run the engine with, uh, and B, I get a you know some sort of reasonable average. You can tell if you're making a mistake when you close the throttle. The exhaust manifold pressure and the intake manifold pressure should change at effectively the same time in the data. If you've got one that's way different than the other, you've got it way over filtered. So you need to, it's going to have to move a little bit faster than that if you want some sort of accuracy. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's something I see a lot when you are adding filters. And like you've said, the analysis software, by the time you've sort of got it filtered to a point where it is smooth, you do tend to see that. Uh, that latency in a, a sharp change like that. I use the least amount of filtering in the software that I can possibly use to make the engine run the way I need it to run. Yeah. Uh, people really, obviously, as human beings, we like to look at smooth lines, not jaggedy lines. But um, you know, my argument is that the jaggedy line is trying to tell you what's really going on. So later on, when you want to know why your engine doesn't run right, and you filtered your fuel pressure so that it looks nice and smooth, but when you look at it, it's really pulsy, full of shit because it's got air in it and you know, whatever else is going wrong that you don't know because you filtered it nicely. Anyway, that's a different story. All right, so I was going to give an example of why this exhaust manifold pressure and inlet manifold pressure thing works so well. So if you've worked on an engine where you've run the turbocharger to the limit of what the what the compressor can deliver or what the turbo can deliver, and the uh, exhaust manifold pressure starts to rise, in fact, even as soon as this exhaust manifold pressure starts to rise over one-to-one, -one, in other words, exhaust is going higher than intake pressure, uh, what you have to do to your main fuel table or your VE table as you continue to go up in manifold pressure is make, if you want to hold the same air fuel ratio, you have to actually make the number in the VE table smaller as you keep going up in, in boost because the exhaust pressure is going up at a higher rate than the intake manifold pressure is going up at. And the ECU, assuming it's doing a map comp in the background, is accounting for the density change 
and you're actually losing volumetric efficiency because you're plugging the engine up with exhaust gas that it can't use to burn. And so that's why your fuel table has to, why do I need less fuel at 450 kPa than I need at 300 kPa? Well, it's because exhaust pressure has gone up more than the intake manifold pressure has, reduced your volumetric efficiency, uh, and therefore you have to go to that place on the table and tune it to get the air-fuel ratio correct. However, if you're mapped based on intake manifold pressure and exhaust manifold pressure, when the intake manifold pressure gets to 450, if the exhaust pressure has gone up, it will show a lower operating point, a less efficient point on the VE table, and it will appropriately fuel itself when it arrives at that condition. Yeah. So if anyone's ever tuned something and they know there's, hey, I noticed my fuel table has to go down as I go up and boost, that's weird because I thought it was weird the first time I saw it. Um, but but that's why. And that's that's one thing that MAP versus EMAP can solve. I, I think that's a common uh, misconception with a lot of people getting into tuning is you, your fuel table is just constantly going to, to rise as the manifold pressure rises. But uh, a, again, it's just so easy to overlook that exhaust manifold pressure unless you've actually logged it and looked at it. And uh, I mean, for, I, you, you, you might have your own numbers here. When I was uh, involved in the import drag racing, what we were sort of looking for there was a, a pressure ratio below one where the exhaust manifold pressure was lower than boost pressure. Uh, and then if you look at a, a road car, maybe a factory road car that's turbocharged, it's not uncommon to see that exhaust manifold pressure as much as double boost pressure. And, and, and again, you're looking at that, that flow across the cylinder head and, and that's really strangling it down. Of course, there's other considerations there that the drive pressure available to the turbocharger affects the boost response. So, I mean, there's no, there's no one size fits all rule here. We've got to look at the entirety of what we're trying to achieve with the package and, and choose turbo sizing appropriate to, to our aims. But uh, again, it's just that, that exhaust pressure is, is so easy to completely ignore if you haven't seen what it does. You can see it manifest itself big time in a road race car because you actually drive around some portion of the time with the throttle not wide open. Um, and the turbine is trying to build boost still against a closed throttle, and, it's a, and it actually is building boost against a closed throttle. So the engine sees less pressure than the compressor is making, uh, but because you're making that pressure, it manifests itself in exhaust pressure on the exhaust side of the engine, your efficiency point drops because you have a bunch of back pressure and no intake manifold pressure. The engine fills itself up with exhaust gas and effectively becomes smaller. And so the engine runs rich unless you do something about it. But if you're measuring MAP versus EMAP, uh, it'll drive itself to that low operating point and then fuel itself correctly under that condition. But, but think about this on a normally aspirated scale. The only way that I could get back pressure, exhaust pressure, if you want, greater than intake pressure would be to close the throttle. So how good is the engine going to run if I close the throttle? Yeah. Right? I close the throttle halfway, and then what do I do? I add boost to get it back up where it needs to be, You know, run two atmospheres of boost, and you close the throttle halfway. That's the same thing. Yeah. Right? Normally, aspirated engine has exhaust manifold pressure or intake manifold pressure anytime the throttle's closed. Or let's say anytime the throttle's closed enough to restrict manifold pressure compared to barometric pressure. Uh, one of the questions I've got here as well is do we in the aftermarket try and reinvent the wheel and make life more complicated for ourselves than it needs to be because if we look at the OE tuning world 
while not all manufacturers use them, the mass airflow sensor is still the the device of choice instead of operating on the speed density principle. And that mass airflow sensor, while it does have its downsides, does have some pros, particularly when we're looking at massive changes in altitude like this, because as its name suggests, it is directly reporting the massive air entering the engine. So why do we not use them? So there's a there's a key to this, but it took me a number of years to come to this conclusion. So the first thing is that I, I, I there was one point where I'm like, I don't know, we should stop. Let's focus on building mass meters that actually work and all that every tuner will can fire himself. Because if you ever get to run an engine um, that uses a mass airflow sensor and it actually works, man, you basically say at this mass flow, I want this air fuel ratio and, and you're done. There's no tuning. It just drives itself around on the mass flow map, fuels itself appropriately according to the mass that the engine's breathing. And it's happy days, right? Um, but here's the key. Uh, first, first of all, the mass meters, they're better, but they were, they weren't anything big enough to supply, uh, the kind of engines that we're working on that make big, big horsepower, like in drag racing. Um, they are reliant on a stable signal that's going one direction. Um, and so that's a struggle with a, with a, with a racing engine that has, you know, lots of overlap or like, you know, individual intake runner manifold or something with lots of pulsing going on in the intake stream. Um, and then the big thing is, which you, you mentioned a minute ago, that the mass flow meter measures the mass flow into the engine. And that's partially true. It's not true in the case that you change from a closed throttle position to a wide open throttle position quickly. Yeah. Because there's a plenum that exists between the mass meter and the intake valves. And that plenum, when you open the throttle, fills itself with more air than the engine actually ingests. And there's where you have an error in the mass meter. So they typically will correct that either by mapping it enough by throttle position and not using a manifold pressure sensor to just flat know this is how much the engine actually needs. Um, or they use a manifold pressure sensor to watch the rise and map and go, okay, forget the, ma- forget the mass meter during this transient, but then go back to it after this amount of time. Or there's some equation that they write where they watch, you know, throttle angle movement and ignore for some period of time yeah it's quite common to see in the oe world where they will predominantly use that mass airflow sensor but on those transients they'll switch momentarily to a speed density system so you kind of got both anyway so i guess from the tuning perspective you've got double the work mass meter wise i i mean that's the struggle with the mass meter and you know it's weird the more you do this sometimes and depend it depends on the application but in some cases you're like you know what this job, I want this job to use all of the awesomeness that I know how to use, but it sure would be a lot easier to do this if I only used alpha N and just an RPM input and something simple and stupid because this engine's not going to know the difference. And there's a whole lot more points of failure the more shit that I add into this to make it do its job correctly. Yeah. So like if I can get 97% of the way there with two things, in this case, it might be better than having all the right stuff. No, fair enough. Uh, keep it keep it simple is always a pretty uh, pretty sensible approach, and I th- I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, from time to time, are guilty of trying to overcomplicate things, and uh, you sometimes end up paying the price. Um, I just want to also talk about the um, the advances that you've seen in the ECU technology, and particularly, 
I, I know you're still working with Motec, obviously, in the M1 platform, which is, is not new by a long stretch now. Uh, but one of the nice things with the, the M1, which is relatively rare in the aftermarket world, is it does allow you to actually write your own code or firmware to essentially make the ECU do whatever it is that you want it to do. Uh, yeah. In particular, the pressure ratio uh, operating system or a load access that you've been talking about through this uh, podcast so far, that's actually not a standard option in the MoTeC firmware packages that are available to end users, is it? Uh, it's not currently in the M1, to my knowledge. Um, it was in the M800, uh, which is where I started using it. And and honestly, you, you don't really need it if you're not changing altitude. Uh, it does it does reference, I think, barometric. It for sure does map comp based on the intake manifold and it uses ambient as a reference point. Um, but it doesn't let that become the volume axis of the, of the volumetric efficiency table. So on the Pike Speed car, that was one of the first thing I changed. Was I? It was a V engine, so I had to screw around a little bit with what happens if it loses one EMAP, you know, or the other. It's, so instead of just doing an average between the two, what if one goes bad and reads zero? Then what am I going to do? So I had to do some logic as far as when one's bad and the other one's bad. Use this one, use that one, you know, use both or use none and use a barrow or whatever whatever but once i got that sorted out we we ran uh, map versus emap for the for the efficiency axis on the on the ve table on the pike's peak car it was one of the first things i changed and as far as being able to uh change the code around um i have some projects that are literally code from scratch that i had motec usa do for me um, before there was really any general purpose software to do anything with six eight years ago um the pike's peak package is a highly modified at this point version of the uh, general purpose race package that Motec offers. So that was one change I made. Um, I made some changes to the Lambda control because it comes back into control when it shouldn't. And so I fixed some of that stuff. But, you know, it's just things you can change on the fly uh, at any time. You have to, it's not, this is not something for every end user to be able to change. Uh, it's complex, it's hard. Uh, and it's not easier for me because I'm not a code writer, um, so, but I can pick my way through it and I can kind of get the result that I want um, by being able to recompile the software uh, and send a new version of firmware to the car literally when it comes back into the pits and it can run the new version with some new thing happening yep. when it leaves. What does that actually look like for the end user Like as you talk about there when you've got uh, the option to write your own firmware that's potentially getting pretty down in the weeds into the ones and zeros of the, the way this thing's actually working. For an end user, what sort of skills do you need to be able to write your own firmware? What does it actually look like to the end user when they're doing that? Well, so you can have people that are good at writing code that are not good at understanding how an engine works. Uh, and they can write a beautiful piece of code that's ridiculously impossible to use or just doesn't work. Um, and obviously you can have guys that know how to tune engines, but they clearly don't know how to write code to make it happen. Um, it takes, it's going to take a, either multiple guys or, you know, you're going to have to spend some time um, in, in both learning how to do code and learning how to make engines perform correctly. And there's a third aspect of it, which is you can come up and I, I've done this, you know, you come up with an, a really elegant solution sitting in your shop uh, on the test bench of how to make some a strategy to make something work. 
uh, and you run through it in your mind, it needs to do this and then this and then this and then this, and you do it and it all works. And you go put it on the car, and it is almost impossible to use because you didn't consider, you know, some, something else that comes into the equation or just flat the fact that at the racetrack, you don't have the tools you have sitting in an office, you know, or, or on a dyno to be able to make these things work like they're supposed to. So it's, it's not, maybe not really a one man job. I, if they gave me a blank piece of, of firmware and said, go ahead, build something that run, I couldn't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm able to manipulate and add small things to something that already works, but I'm not from, I'm not a from scratch guy. Yeah. I, so as far as I had that whole ecosystem work, you're essentially got the supplier in this case, Motec supplying almost a blank slate. You've got the opportunity for someone to write software, which has uh, a back end and a front end. And then at the end of that ecosystem, you've got an end user, which is the tuner. So it's, it's, it's a pretty like, wide range of skills you're covering there. I think, I think it's sort of, it's fair to say, like, first of all, for those listening, like the use of build and writing these custom features is probably irrelevant to 98% of people out there and, and the production firmware is 100% absolutely fine. So so just important to understand that like, this is not a necessity by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's only when you yeah, start to get into some of this more like left field stuff like Pike's Peak and the import drag racing where you really need these specialist features and that's where it comes into its own. Even the even then there's stuff like there's guys that are running Motec at Pike's Peak and they're using general purpose software and they're running up the mountain. No problem. So it's not like you can, don't even go to the mountain if you don't have this, but you, I guess in my case, I've become a snob and it's not so much about achieving the goal of going up the mountain. I want it to achieve the goal of going up the mountain the way I want it to work. And I, I don't care to run it up in Lambda control or, you know, have a fuel table that looks weird. I want one that works because I might use it on something else some other time. So I don't want to have a map that only works on Pike's Peak, you know, or, or Lambda control that fixes itself as it goes up the mountain and, and just rely on that. So it's probably more my snobbery than you can't do it any other way. I, I think the, that's that's another aspect which goes uh, across the board with EFI tuning is, is there's not a lot of set in stone rules that we must follow to achieve a certain aim. And the car that, that I was involved with at Pikes Peak, we ran GPR, just standard off-the-shelf firmware, and how MoTeC deal with that, the, the VE table is just four dimensions. So we've got our conventional table, ah. which is manifold pressure versus RPM, but the fourth dimension, which you can choose to use or not use, is barometric pressure. It's not really the nicest way of dealing with it, but I simply, over the three practice days, I got my barometric pressure points, and I basically developed four different tables that as the barrow changed it switched between them and then the closed loop lambda was kind of there to pick up the pieces if there was any error it, it got the job done was it perfect no so just just so you know i i still had ambient pressure reference as as a fourth dimension on all those tables because i didn't know a hundred percent when we first went up there what whether i would need it or not and i didn't want to take it out and then yep. need it i didn't i didn't want to be right here but wrong there and not be able to fix it so but but i have this way in my mind that everything has to work and it's the way we've been talking about for the last 20 30 minutes and and if i put everything in those terms and i get a different result then i know i have to rethink something something i'm missing something somewhere right so i can't accept just 
having four different maps and it changes as it goes up in ambient because it shouldn't have to do that, hmm. right? Even though I put it in there anyway, right? I did map versus e-map and then what I ended up doing was comparing the four maps and going, oh, these are so close I can just have one map and then turned them all off so I ran one map and so I covered my ass basically. Yeah. But it, but at the end of the day, it really does work map versus e-map with one map in it and it's, you know, I could run the whole race from 9,000 to 14,000 feet without changing. Does the engine know the difference? No. Does the guy that pays the bill know the No. But it's more for me to be able to say, yes, 100%, I understand this concept, than it is to just, what's it going to take to get it up Pikes Peak? Because I could do that too. Like, you know, just so we could just do map and just do an ambient pressure comp even, and it probably totally. get it done, you know? But yeah, so there's just definitely Pikes Peak specifically is, I mean, I've done it with an M800 on a, motorcycle that was map versus e-map that I mapped at sea level and went to Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia that's 12,500 feet. That was my first accidental because he told me it was 9,000 feet, by the way. And when I looked at the GPS, I'm like, it's 3,000 meters. That's more than 9,000 feet. Like that's what, It's like 12,000 feet, by the way. But it ran perfectly and did set the record at 294 miles an hour, so... Um, it obviously worked, but it's look. It it that's how it's supposed to be. But it's always nice when things actually go the way they're supposed to go. Yeah. Instead of you talking about this with all these people about hey, here's how it really works, and then oh never mind, no, not, no, really, I just need four fuel tables. Totally. Yeah. I, I think as well, just to to briefly touch on the build before we move on. Um, I think how you can work with that is really going to be very dependent on what you're trying to achieve. And the nice thing is that for a lot of what we do, uh, I've developed a few features through Build Myself, uh, you don't need to start with that blank sheet of paper approach, which, I mean, for me would be impossible. But they Motec provides you with their, their GPR, their base firmware package. So the nice thing about it is you can actually kind of read through the code and the notes or the comments on the code and, and, and get a sense of, oh, I can see, I can see what they're doing here. And so you don't actually have to be a programmer. It's kind of based around a simplified C++ language as I understand it. And I am not a programmer. I failed miserably a programming or coding paper at uni and quickly realized that wasn't for me. Um, but when I got involved with Build, I, I was interested enough that I could... I, I spent about six months playing around and I taught myself enough to... I developed a, a flex fuel strategy. So, you know... I don't believe you need to be a programmer, uh, and and if you're interested enough in it, it's easy enough to kind of like work it out for yourself. I just want to put people's minds at rest that you don't have to be a rocket scientist here. No, 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 and you're not you're not starting from scratch. If you're making a small like something simple, I, you know what? I want to add a sensor that this doesn't support. Anybody could do that. You literally copy paste, rename some shit, and recompile it, and now you have that kind of a sensor. Yeah. So small things like that are. I mean, they're cake. And if you're doing things like that, I mean, it's a lot of money to spend to be able to have that opportunity. But uh, you could do that. And and that's easy. Stuff like that's very simple. And in fact, that's mostly what I'll do. I don't want to think up a new way to control something. This thing over here does almost everything I want. I'll just copy that, take the pieces I need and rewrite the code so it does what I want. Now it does this other job. Yeah. You know, so I do a lot of that. Um, and also what I meant to say earlier when I interrupted so rudely um, which is kind of my way, uh, is that, uh, yeah, if someone that actually writes code look at what I did, they probably would be like, hmm, 
Yeah, that's pretty sloppy. I've uh, I've got a good friend who helped me out with uh, writing the code that I wrote, and I will never ever show him what I have done for fear of being ridiculed. It is. Yeah, of course. It gets the job done, but uh, yeah, I imagine anyone who actually writes code for a living would uh, roll on the floor laughing. Uh, I, 100% anybody that looks at mine will absolutely do that. Um, I think we're, we're getting getting on a bit here and I am want to be respectful of your time. There's one more question I just want to talk about on the Pikes Peak uh, side of things. You, you, you kind of referenced it earlier. You used the term turbo normalized. Can, can you talk to us about that, what, what that term means and how you're actually using the turbochargers and boost pressure uh, as, as the car started at 9,000 and went to 14,000 feet? I think probably the uh, dictionary definition of normalized would mean that you are maintaining the same pressure in the intake manifold that you have at sea level, which is typically the term that's used to describe normalizing in an airplane so that they can take an airplane that's allowed to take off at sea level uh, and go to 16, 18, 20,000 feet with it and still have the same horsepower rating at 20,000 feet uh, that they have at sea level. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 I, and I sort of loosely uh, use the term um, because I was running such a small amount of boost uh, on the engine at sea level um, that, that you know, effectively I wasn't asking it to do anything more at 14,000 feet than I was asking it to do at sea level. Um, we were running six pounds of boost on the dyno at sea level. It, the reason why uh, is because as you go up in altitude, uh, although the turbo can, uh, if it's sized appropriately, maintain uh, a certain amount of manifold pressure, uh, it, it's at the risk of increased exhaust manifold pressure and temperature because even though you are uh, achieving uh, only six pounds over atmospheric pressure when you're at sea level, uh, and it's a one and a half to one or whatever ratio of pressure, the turbo thinks it's doing two and a half or three times the work when it's starting out with only 60 kPa to begin with. Uh, and so the end result is without knowing what you can achieve at 14,000 feet. And because my driver was a uh, gentleman driver, I felt it would be uh, in my best interest to try to maintain the same level of horsepower on the starting line at 9,000 feet uh, that I could maintain at 14,000 feet. Uh, and, and so one way to do that is not make 1200 horsepower at sea level and then just simply go backwards as you run out of turbo to maintain that power level all the way up the hill. Yep. I said, let's start with almost no boost at sea level. Let's go see what we can make at 14,000. And then that's what we'll start with at 9,000. And so effectively that's what I did. I think just like we've been talking about people overlooking exhaust manifold pressure, uh, the other thing that's really easy with turbochargers is to focus solely on the pressure in the inlet manifold, but that's not really what the compressor cares about, it's the pressure ratio. So even if you're at 6 psi at sea level, uh, 6 psi in the inlet manifold, the pressure ratio that the compressor is working at versus 6 psi in the inlet manifold and 60 kPa at 14,000 feet, completely different location on the compressor map, plus at the same time, you're also raising the exhaust manifold pressure, as you mentioned, closing the wastegates to drive that turbo harder to make that boost. Yep, and the turbo, because it knows it's multiplying more, even though the boost pressure is that the actual absolute pressure delivered to the engine is the same, the temperature's higher because it's on a different spot on its um, efficiency range. 
Um, and, and so you hotter on the exhaust because you've got the exhaust uh, wastegate closed to spin the turbo up fast enough to make that um, pressure ratio, if you want, on the compressor side. Um, and, you know, it, it, 100 and we, we ended up with 10 pounds, abs, uh, 10 pounds of absolute, if you want. I don't, it's not the right way to say it. Uh, 160 kPa absolute. How about that? At the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have a 101.325 at sea level for free. Uh, so that's 60 kPa boost at sea level. Um, the the uh, compressor uh, believes that it's multiplying what's coming in by 1.6. In fact, it is. Uh, but when it's at the top of Pikes Peak and the absolute pressure is 61 kPa and we're making 160 absolute in the intake manifold, the compressor is multiplying by 2.7. So its pressure ratio is 2.7, not 1.6. Yeah. Uh, the engine still operates the same because its intake manifold, actually, it's a little bit off, but its intake manifold pressure is the same. The air density is the same in the intake manifold, uh, assuming we can cool the air off to the same temperature. But we actually lose a little bit on exhaust, uh, sorry, on volumetric efficiency because of the exhaust pressure increase that it takes to run 2.7 pressure ratio versus 1.6. Yeah. So that was a lot of words. Uh, I, I mean, I think it, it just comes down to the fact that when you look at it on, on uh, at a glance, it all seems pretty simple. We've got boost pressure. That that's all we need to know. And then when you actually start digging into it, and we consider these things like exhaust manifold pressure, barometric air pressure, and then our pressure ratio on the turbo, all of a sudden, it's actually a really complex system that we need to deal with and, and model if we want to get consistent results. So this goes completely back a lot of a lot of our conversation ago when we were talking about intake manifold pressure and exhaust manifold pressure. But I remember talking about this with the powers that be who built the M84 and it wouldn't allow you to do this kind of a load calculation. And I kind of got an argument that it didn't really matter. You know, it's this low cost device, whatever, and it doesn't make that much difference. And I'm like, really go do an experiment, go take your car that's running your Motec uh, and start it up and let it idle and then put your foot over the exhaust pipe and see what happens to the Lambda when you plug the exhaust up. Anybody can do this. It's super simple. It's surprising how much the lambda changes by restricting the exhaust even at an idle mm. so it definitely makes a difference yeah all right i think uh we'll, we'll get started wrapping this thing up and, and let you get back to uh making thousands of horsepower shane uh <laughs> what uh what cool projects are, are coming up for you what's what's sort of next on the, the agenda for shane t so the next thing that i was just working on this weekend is back to bonneville uh, with Speed Demon. Okay. So um, last year we ran 480. Well, our exit speed was 480. We got an, uh, a, a a record at 470. I don't know if you have the time for this, but Bonneville's a whole nother can of worms, kind of like Pikes Peak. It's very unique. You only run once, you know, at one time of the year. Uh, you kind of have all year to prepare, and it is a lot more difficult than it seems like it ought to be because the surface is so slippery. Uh, even though you have five miles to get up to speed, it's it's not easy to do. Uh, and then, let alone running there to get a record, I'll try to run through it quickly. Um, the way they the way they calculate your speed uh, in in those last three miles, the third mile, the fourth mile, and the fifth mile, is they measure your time between the start and the end of the the the, thir- the start of the third mile and the beginning of the fourth mile or end of the third mile. That time gives you an average speed that they call the three-mile speed. Mm-hmm. 
they do the same thing between the, so they go they go uh, three to four. Uh, I'm missing one already. So it's two to three, three to four, four to five. Yeah. And your average in each of the first average between two and three is your three. The second average between the three and the four is your four. Mm-hmm. And the third average between the four and the five is your five mile speed. Uh, and and that sets your speed number. And then you have something called exit speed, which is an actual trap speed that's 132 feet long at the fifth mile. Okay. So that's more of your instantaneous speed at that point on the fifth mile, right? So that's why our exit speed is 481, but our average is only 470 in the fifth mile. That's what the record is not set by exit speed. It's set only by average speed. So, for example, this year, if we wanted to qualify on that same record, we would have to post a speed in any one of those three miles average that was greater than 470, the current record. We would then go, we would then have, uh, I think, one hour to report to impound. You're not allowed to work on the car. You're not allowed to do anything else. You're, you get one hour from where you're at the end of the return road to impound. You go to impound, you have four hours to work on the car, and then you're not allowed to work on it anymore. Uh, you put the car to bed, you go home, you get up the next morning um, and come out on the salt, start the car, warm it up, fuel it up, whatever you're going to do, but not work on it. I mean, you could put a screw tight in a screw or a hose clamp, but you can't be, work, can't be putting a cylinder head on. Yeah. Okay, and then tow the car to the starting line, and record return runs start with whoever wants to go first that's in their record return run line. And and your record run, then, has to average with your qualifying speed in the same mile you qualified in, higher than the current record, or you don't get a record. You start back over again. Or or you go to, you go up to make a run, and let's just say that I don't know, the parachute falls out as soon as you leave the starting line. You're done. No do-overs. Go qualify again. Go to impound again. Come back the next day and run your record return. That's why it's so damn hard for people to get records out there and why it means so much when you get one. Oh, so. I can only imagine. It, it sounds harsh. I think uh, we might have to revisit you in another episode to dive into that because I think we could spend at least another hour talking about land speed racing, which I'm, hey, I'm definitely no interested in. I'm just interested, what, what advice you would have maybe uh, to a younger version of yourself or, or someone coming up through the ranks who aspires to get into the industry and tuning, uh, given your experience now, everything you've learned along the way, is there any advice you would give, give a younger version of yourself? I think that if I had, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I will say this, I think experience is king. Um, doesn't mean you can't have any, any education. I did it the hard, look, if you're, if you don't want to go get some education, then be willing to put in the time to get the experience. And that means a lot of time because it probably is going to take you longer to figure things out than if you just let somebody go teach you. Um, but man, does experience pay dividends when you are actually dealing with problems that don't just add up like they do in a textbook. I agree. Uh, when you when you have something like, look, I have a real simple one. The engine won't start. I have spark. I have fuel. I have air. It still won't start. Now what? That, technically, if you have those three things, spark at the right time, it should run. But sometimes, I mean, you usually you're missing something. You're just not, don't know what it is yet. But experience can pay off in a lot of ways. So the best way is get experience. Be humble. Um, you know, no, make sure that what you know 
to the best of your ability is accurate, but don't be afraid to accept something new that makes more sense. Uh, common sense is another thing that's really uncommon. Mm. Um, listen to yourself. Listen, listen to your judgment. Don't accept something someone says, not even me, just because they have been doing it for a long time or because they've you know, got this big reputation. People with reputations and people that have been racing for a long time can make mistakes and just do the same thing wrong for 20 years. Um, so as long as you're willing to, you know, change direction 180 degrees on your beliefs when you realize that you were wrong, you'll go a long way. Yeah, I, I think if I look back at the start of my career, I couldn't agree more. I, I was I was self-taught, and I mean we founded High Performance Academy, obviously to to help those who want to learn how to tune. I mean, it's not essential, but this is the information that we provide that I wish I'd had access to. And I think what you've just said is right. It, it It's going to fast track your learning, but there is still the requirement for gaining experience. And I think the other thing I've seen as well, uh, my own background sort of started more, I was never a mechanic, but I had that mechanical knowledge. And so often, and I fall, still feel guilty of this myself, you're sitting in the comfort of the driver's seat with the laptop, you're on the dyno, something's not right, and you want to fix it with a laptop. But at the end of the day, at some point, you've got to face facts, get out of the car and go and put the spark lead back on the, on the spark plug, because that's the problem. And you're not going to fix that with the laptop, no matter which button you press. Right. You're going to want to put more fuel in because the Lambda is showing that it's lean. Even then, you, And you've made 10 pulls and it's fine and you don't know why. Yeah. It's also down 50 horsepower. Yeah. But yeah, look, listen, I fall in the same trap too all the, all the time. I mean, I'm so used to um, – maybe I'm used to – whether I'm right or not, I think I'm right. So I'm, I'm so used to thinking that I'm right about everything. Uh, I, I also have a hard time believing the simple thing like the plug wires off could actually be what's wrong. <laughs> They're like, there's no way the plug wires. How could that be? What's wrong? And then eventually, I circle around and go, you know what? Let's just go look at it. Yeah, fuck, it's not on. Yeah, awesome. Still got to get the mechanical system right at the start. Uh, and lastly, if people want to find out more about you or follow you, uh, what what uh, what's their options there on social media? Where are you at? Oh, the sort of normal avenues to access tuned by Shane T on almost everything: Facebook, Instagram. Um, YouTube, um, I yeah, tuned by Shane T. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing of it is, following along with me is one thing. Anybody that needs to get a hold of me for a project will find a way, and uh, that also keeps the guys that are just uh, kicking tires from having direct access. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Shane. Really appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Cheers, Shane. Thank you. Cheers, guys. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 
$25 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.